3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the lands from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7 a.m. to 8.30 a.m. Good morning, listeners. You're on Thursday Breakfast, 3CR, 855 a.m., and it is just coming up to 5 past 7 in the morning. And it's the 6th of May. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. It is almost... How are we almost halfway through the year? Uh... Don't know. <laughs> Just good radio, I guess. That's what gets us through. Exactly. <laughs> Time flies and you're having fun. Yeah. Um, good morning, Rosie, Carly, and Malika. Morning. Good morning. Good morning. It's a full studio this morning. How exciting. <laughs> it's going to be even fuller because we're going to have a live guest, which is incredibly exciting. Oh, wow. Didn't know we're having a live guest. Yeah. Yeah. You better believe it. <laughs> um, all right. So what do we have on for the show today? Well, I'll, I'll start. Um, <laughs> So first up, we're going to hear a conversation that I had yesterday with Dr. Vikrant Kishore, who's a filmmaker and academic at Deakin University and who joined me to speak about COVID-19 and caste discrimination in both uh, India and Australia. Dr. Kishore's current work involves capturing stories of current flow, uh, sorry, cultural flows and their impacts on the Indian diaspora in Australia, and his approach involves integrating traditional cultural practices with new media technologies. Um. I'll be then be, I will then be speaking to Monica Cast, a mental health social worker, um, and she'll be talking to us about the proposed extension to telehealth services under Medicare. We'll also be talking about the introduction of telehealth services last year and how that impacted service users, as well as what this means um, and what is needed going forward. And then I'm going to be having a conversation with Felix Ralph, who is a criminal lawyer at Marshall Yovanoska Ralph Criminal Lawyers, based in the western suburbs and the Melbourne CBD. And he appears regularly in the specialist criminal courts like the drug court. And so he's going to be joining us to discuss some new plans for a drug court that's going to be introduced into the Victorian County Court. And then I'm going to be speaking with Guido Mello and Stephen Pham, and they're joining us to discuss a new anthology, Racism, Stories of Fear, Hate and Bigotry, which has been published by Sweatshop Western Sydney Literacy Movement. And then lastly, we're going to hear from Jasmine Pilbrow from Make West Papua Safe, and she's going to join us to discuss an action on Monday, 10 May, uh, so that's next Monday, to call on the Australian Federal Police to stop training the Indonesian National Police Force. Yeah, and if you want to find out more about what's going on in West Papua at the moment, we interviewed Pora Bibi on the show last week, so you can head to uh, 3cr.org.au slash Thursday dash breakfast to catch up on that previous episode and hear a bit about the context there. Um, and now maybe we'll jump into some news headlines. Yeah, so I'll start us off. So today is the 6th of May. Earlier this week, the Western Australian doctor who declared Ms. Du fit for return to custody 24 hours before her death was fined $30,000. Ms. Du died in the South Headland Police Station in August 2014. And uh, a warning for all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners that these beginning headlines um, are going to be speaking about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who have died in custody. 
The coronial inquest revealed that Ms. Du died of pneumonia and septicemia caused by an infection in a rib that had been broken for weeks. Her infection could likely have been treated with antibiotics on her first or second visit to hospital if she had been given an X-ray or her vitals had been checked. There are two coronial inquests into Aboriginal deaths in custody happening at the moment. During the inquest into the death of Bailey Macanda, the inquest heard that Macanda notified prison staff that he was stressed, anxious and couldn't breathe. While being held in an isolated cell, he was told by a guard, there's nothing wrong with you, other than your attitude. The inquest listened to audio recordings from the prison's knock-up system, which is an intercom between people in custody and staff for medical emergencies. Mr. McCander used the system several times over the two days before his death, after he was placed in an isolated cell due to concerns about mental condition. Whilst in the isolated cell, McCander repeatedly said, I'm stressed and I'm panicking, it's making me sick and I can't cope. There's also an inquest into the death in custody of Wayne Feller Morrison, who was pulled unresponsive from a prison van days before his death. The inquest has been running for over a year, and yesterday the family were told that there would be no court today, but that the coroner would likely hand down the determination via email. And in a statement from the family, they say, We have been waiting four and a half years for answers. The seven officers who were in the van with him are contesting to giving the evidence that we deserve. In 2019, they took Coroner Bashir to the South Australian Supreme Court, securing a penalty privilege that allowed them to refuse questions if they would result in professional reprimand. Um, And as people will be aware, last month was the 30th anniversary of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, and yet uh, the Northern Territory Labor government last month flagged what it's described as tougher-than-ever consequences for alleged offending, um, including proposed changes that are set to be introduced into Parliament, um, I believe, this week, including automatic revocations of bail, the removal of the presumption of bail in more cases, new limits on access to youth diversion, and greater electronic uh, monitoring powers for police, which the Gunner uh, government has said uh, will increase the number of young people being held on uh, on remand. Um, And, yeah, basically there has been a response from a a group of community organisations, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and non-Indigenous health and justice groups, including Aboriginal Medical Services Alliance, NT, the Australian Medical Association, Northern Territory, Central Australian Aboriginal Congress, uh, Aboriginal Corporation, Danila Dilba Health Service, and the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists, who wrote an open letter to the Northern Territory government published in full on Crohe yesterday, which uh, says that the reforms pose a significant threat to the health and well-being of at-risk young people in the Northern Territory, where Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children routinely make up 100% of the juvenile detention population, and um, the Change the Record First Nations-led National Justice Coalition has said that this harks back to the dark days before the Royal Commission, uh, when Dondale was full of Aboriginal people being subjected to pretty horrendous abuse. Um, Yeah. Yeah, and more locally now we see that Victoria Police is looking to relaunch their schools program. Um, so, yeah, this school's program was um, scrapped, but now they are looking to reinforce it. Um, so it discontinued about 16 years ago, but now there's a pilot program that started in a Geelong school. And finally, um, the final headline is that 
uh, universities across Victoria have, you know, released their annual budget, uh, sorry, annual reports with um, some universities posting deficits and some universities um, with reduced uh, profits. But basically what this is flagging is that student, uh, universities are going to further cut courses, further cut staff um, in response to these uh, reduced profits but basically you know as we kind of know um, it's always reported as that this is because of COVID and because of um, decreased international student numbers but in the end it's really <laughs> about funding isn't it? Yeah I mean I think with these cuts as well um, you know there's been a lack of political will from the federal government to fund higher education and actually you know pushes to defund um, but also this speaks to issues around the corporatization of universities as well and so for example the university of Melbourne, we recently saw uh, their their budget, um, or I think it was an annual report, come out with their with their costings for last year, um, and the way that they quantify the number of casual workers has uh, changed. So it, you know these things aren't necessarily even reflective of the amount of people that are being affected by cuts. Absolutely. Um, all right, we'll just go to some CSAs now. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM, and this is the Thursday Morning Breakfast Show. Um, now we're going to go to an interview that I did yesterday with Dr. Vikrant Kishore, who's a filmmaker and academic at Deakin University and who joined us to speak about COVID-19 and caste discrimination in both India and the Australian diaspora. And Dr. Kishore's current work involves capturing stories of cultural flows and their impacts on the Indian diaspora in Australia. Hi, Dr. Kishore. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today on 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast. Uh, now, before we jump into the conversation, would you like to self-introduce in a little bit more detail and tell listeners a bit about what you do? Hi, Priya. First of all, thanks a lot uh, for inviting me in this particular program. Uh, my name is Dr. Vikrant Kishore. Uh, I'm a filmmaker and a film academic uh, currently based at Deakin University in Melbourne. And I've been capturing stories of cultural flows and its impact on Indian diaspora in Australia. And as a filmmaker and as a researcher, I like to integrate traditional cultural practices with new media technologies. And my research areas are Indian cinema and intangible cultural heritage. Awesome. Thank you so much. And um, I can imagine that those areas have also a lot of overlap with what we're kind of talking about today, thinking about the Australian federal government's recent uh, travel uh, travel restrictions for citizens trying to move back into the country from India um, who are facing fines and up to five years imprisonment. And understandably, there's been a lot of public backlash from Indian Australians against what appears to be um, a discriminatory policy. But it's also important to recognize that the Indian Australian community isn't monolithic. Um, so I was wondering if we could speak to some questions of how caste plays into these conversations and maybe beginning with a sort of general description of casteism for listeners who aren't necessarily familiar with the concept. Yeah, thanks, Priya. Of course, uh, this is a loaded question and probably <clears throat> does not play directly as such, but uh, I would like to start with my own particular take. And, uh, uh, and as we know, and as you have also said, that India is going through a huge crisis at the moment due to COVID-19, and which is uh, 
really, really, you know, uh, created a big crisis. Uh, and uh, Australia, of course, had, uh, you know, promised support and tangible effort to reach out and support uh, India in every possible way. Yet, what has happened recently, the decision by the Austrian government regarding flight bans and hefty fines, as you mentioned, you know, it's very harsh. You know, while I'm also of the political opinion, yes, Australia should be careful and protective and uh, take precautions to keep its people safe. But if Australians who are stranded in India during this precarious moment are left without any support and no option to come back at home, then it is a problematic decision and needs to be rethought and reworked. Australian citizens, no matter, and whichever part of the world should be supported and not punished for wanting to come back to their own country. So that's not the way. I'm totally against it. Mm. Uh, probably, you know, things like quarantine systems should have been stronger. We had almost a year or more to do all those things. But, uh, yeah, so that's that's one of the things. And I'm also fearful of the health and well-being of people out there. And every day I'm seeing so many of my own family members being impacted that it's heartbreaking. Mm. So coming on to the issue of caste. Now, this is a very different approach. And I also thank you for bringing out this uh, particular discussion within this wider, you know, COVID-19 mm-hmm. and impact of India. And this is a big problem. And the Hindu community or the Indian community, uh, especially the Hindus, they are not untouched, especially in terms of representation. Generally, it is the the most privileged Hindu caste that has always been at the forefront in the diaspora community, enjoying the best in the name of multiculturalism and being a minority. Okay, so yet not acknowledging their own prejudices vis-a-vis caste. Often totally, they dismiss that caste should be considered as an issue, which is very problematic. So when you talk about, uh, you know, this, uh, about caste, I don't find it as a kind of an easy discussion. Mm-hmm. And uh, one does not see generally the direct impact of caste discrimination in Australia as such. Thus, uh, the covert prejudices that one encounters is challenging. Uh, to describe, especially to the Western kind of, uh, you know, people in the West uh, who don't understand the particular politics of caste. Mm. So if I try to explain caste uh, in few sentences, though it will be at the service, but because it has a long history and there are lots of other, you know, ifs and buts and things, uh, you know, but to put it simply, Hindu castes are on the basis of so-called four varnas or the classes, classes, that has Brahmins, supposedly the knowledge giver on the top. Next are the Kshatriyas, that theoretically these are the warrior community, uh, followed by Vashyas, these are mostly the trading communities. And at the fourth level comes the Shudras, who are sadly the working class. And unfortunately, the fifth that sits outside of these four Varnas are the so-called Dalits, historically the menial workers who were treated as untouchables. Till the time it was made a punishable offense under the Indian constitution, yet the practice actually remains rampant. Mm -hmm. And caste is descent-based and hereditary in nature. Of course, it started as a karma thing that if you're doing a certain work, then you can move on from one caste to another. Of course, it changed and it became a kind of a polluted Mm -hmm. form of, uh, you know, practice. So, and and within these castes or within these particular Varna structure, there are multiple sub-castes. So within, you know, Brahmins, you'll find hundreds of sub-castes. Within Kshatriyas, you'll find 100, 200 sub-castes. So there are multiple sub-castes and there are politics within sub-castes as well. Mm -hmm. So with the growing Indian diaspora and their cultural practices, some of these caste preferences 
and discrimination are also present within the community. And it is high time that should be questioned. And many diaspora groups in U.S. and U.K. are fighting to get caste discrimination recognized as an offense. Also, now, to connect it with what is happening since the outbreak of COVID-19, you know, in the first wave, if you have followed the news from India, it was the migrant laborers in the big cities. Mm-hmm. They were impacted hugely because with the sudden lockdown, they lost their jobs because they are, you know, daily wage earners. So that happened a mass exodus, you know, as a result of these lockdown. And most of these particular labor class come from the Dalit community, mm-hmm. of course. That's, that's a kind of social structure. So there was no support from the government and people were left without any care on their own. Many are still struggling in their mm-hmm. hometown and in their villages and all. And that's another kind of issue which the mainstream media somehow in India and even in the Western world have totally ignored. They didn't, have not given much thought. It was through the social media and, mm-hmm. you know, really independent journalists that we got to know about the stories and really tragic stories. So during this COVID outbreak, what is happening? While in the first COVID outbreak, the middle class was enjoying their lockdown. Everybody was busy doing Dalgona coffee, you know, uh, (laughs) trying to, you know, watch Netflix, recommending this and that. And it was very good for middle class and, uh, of course, the upper class and uh, elites. Uh, But nobody was talking about the poor or from Mm. people from the lower castes. Okay. Now, suddenly this lack of planning by the government, because the government thought that they have won COVID-19. Yeah, Modi was, course, Modi was talking about that, uh, you know, yeah. after that first wave, saying, oh, you know, we've done so well, and, you know, now we're yeah. seeing the effects of that kind of complacency. Yeah, they were in a kind of a self-congratulatory mode, and this was just last month, and they were patting their backs, and they were like, oh, wow, we have done such a fantastic job, and they went on a kind of a... Uh, five states were uh, due for elections, which just happened recently. Mm. And they were just doing, you know, this huge campaigns with, you know, millions of people and these campaigns coming and, you know, watching their favorite leaders or whatever in the name of religion and name of caste and all kind of things that they can throw up to them. But ultimately what happened? that you did not prepare the country the way what was promised. There were millions and billions of money collected in the name of COVID-19, but you did not see that being spent on medical facilities and services. And thus, the overburdened, you know, medical facilities, services, uh, really, you know, came crashing. Absolutely. And then middle class, which could buy these things, and, and the upper class who could do that, what about the poor people? We are not listening or we are not hearing about what the crisis they are going through. Yeah. So I find this is, at the moment, it's just not about a specific caste or religion. It is really concerning how people are left to fend on their own again and again. As you mentioned, the, the public health care infrastructure, I mean, was not really there and built up to begin with. But failing to use that lockdown to build up the public health infrastructure um, has really, I mean, this, this pandemic's been a leveler in a sense that, you know, it affects people across all caste lines now because there's just this lack of access. So even though there was already sort of an internal kind of medical apartheid where caste privileged people were able to access private health care, um, you know, now it's really hitting everyone. Yeah, it is hitting everyone. And, you know, no matter how much the diasporic Australians 
who always, you know, rely on hyper-nationalism and so-called, you know, Hindutva pride and all, mm. they can't hide. You know, that's what I've, I've been seeing, that what they have been doing is trying to create that nationalistic fervor or, you know, help our nation and this and that. And this is what they have been doing in, you know, during so many, you know, uh, public uh, issues, be it CA or NRC mm-hmm. issues which happened. And they were really, you know, term, uh, ready to term anyone who's talking against any particular government policy as anti-nationals or Naxals or urban Naxals, things like that. And even I was branded like, you know, by some of the community mm-hmm. members like that. And right now, if you talk about the, uh, the uh, you know, the apathy that the government has shown, the, you know, the way they were underprepared, yet there are, you know, people who are still stuck with their Hindutva outlook Mm-hmm. with the government, because, of course, it is a right-wing Hindutva government in power. So they are trying to defend it in that way, and I have an issue with that. Okay. And when we and you just used the term the medical apartheid, you know? Mm-hmm. And this is another kind of problem. The medical apartheid, what is happening is that, at the moment, you see black marketing, profiteering, mm-hmm. oxygen cylinders, you know, are being sold for a lakh, you know, in, in Australian dollars, for an oxygen cylinder. Yeah, I mean, we have seen um, some mobilization in the diaspora around mutual aid stuff, but then it's also really, you know, I've also seen some warnings on social media being like, you've got to make sure that these are actually going uh, towards things that will support people across caste lines. Yeah, now that, that's a kind of a thing. Generally, generally I see when people are trying to support these things, they are not thinking about caste lines. You know, mm. that's, that's a far away thing. But then they are also not being aware or they are not being, you know, they are not checking that who are receiving those kind of uh, help. So mostly if your, you know, help is going to the big cities or, you know, or, or the places where the help is already there or someone will be there, you know, you feel helpless yeah. as to who do we go? But, there is also problem of the right NGOs and right organizations. And uh, you, you would also be, you know, knowing that uh, in India uh, last year, they also came down heavily on lots of NGOs. And, you know, they mm. took out their, uh, you know, foreign, uh, all those licenses to mm. get funds and all, because lots of them were questioned on, their, you know, their operation and all. So lots of NGOs were blacklisted or not given the foreign account and all. So there are also very limited options as well. So, yeah. yeah. So, and in fact, I was going through this article by Vidya Krishna in, in Atlantic, and she she says mm. about this particular apartheid, the medical apartheid, is that she's saying that we suffer from moral malnutrition. Mm-hmm. None of us, more so than the rich, the upper class, the upper caste of India, and nowhere is this more evident in that than in the health care sector. Mm-hmm. So what we see in the pharma companies, healthcare, hospital, milking the situation, and who are left out, you know, of course, the poor, the downtrodden, you know. Yeah, and also I want to emphasize the fact that, you know, for people that aren't familiar, India has a, a huge rural population and a lot of people from um, marginalized castes as well and also from indigenous backgrounds live in rural, um, in rural communities that are, that are not able to access this help. Yes, yes, and and, and uh, like earlier, you know, the, the news were more focused on the urban centers mm-hmm. because most of the cases were coming from urban centers. But now, well, like since the uh, last three, four days, I'm seeing how the rural areas are impacted and people are losing their lives, and and, and they don't have access to social media like many who are, you know, uh, using mm-hmm. social media to actually get help. And I, I can see so many of my friends who are really there through their social media, 
you know, doing those outreach, and they were 24-7 online, you know, mm-hmm. posting things about who needs oxygen, who needs this support. And I'm amazed how this kind of an informal system through social media really worked well. I think to wrap up, um, where can people find out more information about where they can donate as well um, if people want to support? Well, there are multiple donation sites at the moment which has come up. Okay, I can't, I can't really, you know, pick up one. So, at this moment, people need to be a bit sensitive and mm. sensible. Do due diligence. Make sure you cross-check if who they are supporting mm-hmm. and if they have, they have a good track. Okay, because there are lots of these kind of dubious people who have come in and they are also trying to take advantage of the situation. So, cross-check, see and also see how much presence they have at the ground level. Absolutely. And how much uh, poors are also, poor people are also being benefited by their work. So, yeah. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you so, so much for taking the time to walk us through this. Yeah, yeah. yeah and that's, that's the thing. This is the discussion that generally in Australia we miss, that we always talk about, oh, we are going through a huge kind of a crisis and this and that. But now with the growing Indian diaspora, there are also so many complications and within the community also that needs to be discussed and that needs to be also focused rather than just uh, uh, people taking benefit in the names of multiculturalism and mm. uh, uh, being minority, but within the minority also, how these kind of privileged castes and privileged class takes away the particular, you know, uh, attention and talk about their own particular selfish uh, needs and requirements as well. Sorry, I'm being a bit blunt here. No, yeah, but that's, I mean, thank you so much for speaking back to that because that, kind of, um, that is the kind of blunt message that we need to hear. Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. And you're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is just past 7.30 in the morning, and you just heard an interview with Dr. Vikrant Kishore, who's a filmmaker and academic at Deakin University, and who joined us to speak about COVID-19 and caste discrimination in India and Australia. Um, we are now going to be speaking to Monica Cast, um, a mental health social worker who runs her own practice um, at Safe Haven Counselling. And we're back with Monica this morning. Um, thanks for holding on for a second, Monica. Um, no problem. <laughs> it all happens. Um, so, yeah, let's jump into this. So, for listeners that might not be aware, could you please tell us a bit more about the changes to Medicare last year with the introduction of telehealth across the healthcare space? Yeah, sure. So... 
prior to COVID hitting and changing all of our lives, mm. most healthcare services uh, needed to be done in person if they mm. were going to be supported under Medicare. So if you wanted to do anything out of the in-person mm. going to a clinic space, you, you have to pay for it privately. So what happened, um, thankfully, um, when, when life really changed under COVID, mm-hmm. there was, um, provisions made that we could all, um, access services, um, health services, mental health services mm-hmm. online or on telephone, um, and, and utilize our, the Medicare rebates for that. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a big change. There was a great resistance to to this happening prior prior to being forced to to have this in place um, when COVID hit, there was there's some provisions for people in remote areas to to access online services or um, telephone services, but it's um, it was a big change um, in um, about March or April last year. So I can imagine it meant that a lot more people could access the support, not just because it was online and they didn't have to commute, but maybe also because it was something that was a reduced fee, so they weren't having to pay to travel to services and different things like that. Yeah, absolutely. It's really revolutionised the sector in my mind um, since this this has been um, available. Uh, We had such an increase in demand for mental health services, mm. uh, particularly in the significant lockdowns, and and so it made the, the services accessible to start with, and people don't have to pay to to, mm. um, to travel, and then again in remote areas that's significant. Mm. Um, but we've also had people be able to access services um, across Australia. Yeah. So, um, I've offered services to people interstate that yeah. may never have been able to um, to access um, my support, but because now they can just jump online or on a telephone, um, they they can get in contact with anyone that's got that's got the space to see them. Um, so that that's been significant. I think a lot of people are accessing services when they wouldn't have prior to this. Um, when when people experience really significant mental health issues, they mm. often don't want to leave the house. Yes. And so it's meant that um, people can can do so really safely and comfortably and, and recover from their experiences or manage their mm. experiences um, in a way that they wouldn't have been able to prior to these changes. Mm. And like you said so rightly, it really revolutionised the space. Um, what would you say are some of the other impacts of having access to telehealth services now post-lockdown and now that we're in that kind of recovery phase from COVID-19? Yeah, so look, I think that the changes have continued in a similar way in that, that we're still there's still great benefit. People can... Uh, still access these provisions now, so mm. we've had that continued access benefit. But more generally, I mean, we still, although we're somewhat post-lockdown, um, we still have the the possibility of a lockdown mm. occurring at, at any time. Any time. have seen that in Perth recently. Mm. So it's meant that there's a continuity of care that's available. Mm. If we go into lockdown at any time, people can just pop online. Mm. Um, people, my practice I'd say about a third of my clients continue to use online services, even if they're close by. 
it's mm. just more convenient. They can see me in their lunch break. Yes. They can um, they don't have to organise a babysitter. There. Mm. They can they can do that. So I think we've seen that continued benefit. Mm-hmm. I think we've also seen the benefit because um, if anyone's unwell, they yes. can swap onto online, <laughs> and that's great for all of us. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so there, there's a there's a great benefit there. Mm-hmm. So it's it sounds yeah. like it's really something. Whilst it was introduced in in that kind of COVID lockdown period, the benefits of that are still rolling and it's something that makes this support way more accessible and way more like easier to navigate in terms of our day-to-day lives and fit it into our day-to-day lives. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think this is a real, it's a game changer in, in people continuing to support their mental health and just making it that much easier. Yeah, and the federal government recently announced that they're planning to extend these changes for Medicare um, for telehealth until the end of the year with the expectation to make telehealth a permanent addition to ne- from next year. Um, why do you believe it's important for there to be ongoing access to telehealth services? Uh, look, I think from what I've said, um, said so far, I think that it's, it's such a significant improvement to the sector that it, we need to see this continue. We've seen throughout last year we had really short extensions mm. to telehealth and so um, while I really welcome that we've got this till the end of the year, I think the sector's um, advocating really strongly that mm. this becomes a permanent um, permanent part of our health system mm. um, and that we have we have that security um, that this is going to be something that's available uh, mm. for for our service users. I think service users will be reluctant to engage in in men, uh, mental health support, uh, especially if they're not sure that this is continuing. You yeah. want to start with someone and be unsure whether next month you you so can true. see them because they're so far away. Mm. Yeah, no, for yep. sure, and. Um, the Health Minister Greg Hunt recently shared, um, and I quote this, the government continues to work with peak bodies to co-design permanent post-pandemic telehealth as part of broader primary care reforms to modernise Medicare and provide flexibility of access to primary and allied healthcare services. Um, in this co-design process, what changes do you hope to, to see embedded into these recommendations? Look, I think that there is um, really sensible practices being implemented across the sector, and I think that there's a um, there's a willingness in government to, to really implement these. I think for for the mental health sector especially, I think we need to see a an improvement in communication systems. Um, it is almost laughable and ludicrous that most referral and health information these days gets sent by faxes. I don't know about you, but I don't know anyone else that uses a fax these days. Um, so we'd we'd really be uh, welcoming um, there being um, a, a, a sector-wide um, mm. approach to mm. improving communication systems. Awesome. Um, at present, that is just um, really complicated mm. and there's no straightforward system. So I think that that would make a difference. Mm. For sure. Thank, um, and lastly, um, in an article written by Anna Peters, um, Director of Deakin University's Institute for Health Equity in Public Health, um, 
sorry, the Institute of Health Transformation and a professor of epidemiology and equity in public health. She made the case that the shift to telehealth requires more than a few new Medicare items and the associated financial incentives. What do you think is necessary for telehealth to succeed in coming years, particularly in the mental health space? Yeah, look, I think that we've, uh, as we've gone along in the last year, made a great deal of improvements in mm. how we offer telehealth across the sector. I think that it was chaotic and confusing in the beginning when, mm. when COVID um, first hit, but now that this has become quite routine, we've made a lot of improvements and, and managed that. I do think that we need... Uh, good research into to mm. seeing what works especially well in, in telehealth services. Mm. Um, the sector anecdotally is saying that it um, it is uh, probably equal to in-person services mm. around mental health care. So um, the anecdotal evidence is there. I think we need to back that up with research. Mm. I also think that, like I said, we... Um, we need that continuity that mm. we know that this is something that can be um, be offered mm. uh, for for the sector, so that service users are happy to continue continue using it and making use of the mental health services um, that that exist and are out there. Yeah. That's yeah. that's such an incredible insight into it. And, yeah, from your work over the past many years, I can imagine that it's been awesome seeing the shift um, over the past year. Um, thank you so much, Monica, for joining us this morning um, and talking a bit more about these proposed changes. It's my pleasure. That was Monica Cast, a mental health social worker um, at Safe Haven Counselling. Um, she joined us to discuss the proposed extensions to telehealth services under Medicare. Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island, to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio, 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. You're listening to 3CR, Thursday morning breakfast, 8.55am. Now let's head into a song. This one is a new one from Calypso, On Our Way. Show. I'll be your day 
You're listening to 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast and just then we heard a new one from Calypso on our way. And now joining us on the line is Felix Ralph, who is a criminal lawyer at Marshall Jovanoska Ralph Criminal Lawyers based in the Western Suburbs and the Melbourne CBD. He regularly appears in specialist criminal courts like the Drug Court and he joins us this morning to discuss some new plans for a drug court to be introduced into the Victorian County Court. Welcome, Felix. Thank you very much. Um, pleasure to be here. So can you first start off by talking a little bit about how the drug courts work in the uh, Victorian uh, magistrates' courts? Yeah, sure. So um, basically what happens with drug court is that um, when you're facing a period of imprisonment, um, usually more than six months imprisonment, you're... Um, you discuss your eligibility with the lawyer and, and you can't have any um, crime that uh, involves hurting people or um, sexual offending. And and this is people who are very marginalised, often homeless, and have serious hardcore addiction issues. And that those addictions very much are linked in with their criminality. Then you go, you speak to your lawyer, they discuss the eligibility for drug court, and then you go before drug court, and you're actually sentenced to jail. Um, you're, you're sentenced to jail, say, for 12 months, and then you have the opportunity to serve that jail sentence within the community. And um, that goes for a period of about two years, and they provide you with um, housing if required, social workers, drug and alcohol workers. Um, and there's a real focus on problem solving. It's a it's a specialist court, so it's a problem solving jurisdiction. Um, and they really emphasise honesty. And, and basically, the point is to to get long term sustainable change from people who are participating in the in the drug court program. But it's a it's a wonderful jurisdiction. It, it was first set up in Dandenong, um, very early 2000s by his honour. Magistrate Tony Parsons, and then it's expanded to the Melbourne Magistrates Court, and now it's expanded to the County Court of Victoria. Yeah, and can you talk us through um, maybe some of the benefits and the negatives that you see some of these courts having on people? Because, I mean, um, yeah, like as you mentioned, somebody could serve you know, a year in prison, or alternatively, then it's two years in the community, which, yeah. um, I mean, does set people up sometimes to fail if they don't have those support networks and if they don't feel like they can adhere to all of the conditions. Yeah, that's definitely true. Um, one of the... It's, uh, sentencing options, there's often in, in media and um, in discussion in the public, it's, it's often a sort of a binary discussion. Um, this is just one arrow in the quiver for a for a, a defence lawyer or a sentencing magistrate to be able to use. Um, and I think the biggest lesson and the hardest lesson that I learned was making sure that the goals of the client are actually aligned with the goals of the court. Um, and, and that started to filter through, you know, throughout the people on remand, they, they say, they say to each other, you've got to really carefully think about whether you actually want to do drug court and whether you can do drug court. Um, so it is a, it is a massive commitment. Um, they, it, it's, it's like a full-time job 
it's a it's an all encompassing um, thing, but the benefits of it can be massive. And I've had some um, incredibly transformative um, experiences for my clients in drug court, and they've gone on and and they're still living very happy and productive lives. Um, and compare that to where they were five or six years ago. It's just it's just incredible. But it is a massive commitment, and it can. It can set them up to fail, um, and that's why it's that's why it has to be very carefully examined by everyone: um, defence lawyer, the magistrate, um, self-reflection for the person who is wanting to go into drug court, um, and whether they're suitable for it. But it's not for everyone; otherwise, everyone would be in it. Um, but it, it's it's generally for people who've um, they're really at the end of the line. Um, for whatever reason, there's there's a they'll they'll often take people with large criminal histories who've been in and out of jail, and there's that revolving door of jail. Mm. Um, so if if they're ready, um, it's fantastic. Um, if they're not, and and sometimes I've had clients they've they've um, failed the first time, and then they've come back and they said, Felix, I want, want to try a second time, and then they've given it a really good go and, and actually graduated it from drug court on the second time round. But it isn't, it isn't for everyone, um, and that's why very careful consideration has to be given to eligibility and, and things like that and whether, whether the goals are aligned, I, I think, is the best way of putting it. Yeah, yeah, <clears throat> absolutely. And so what are the current propositions for a drug court um, commencing in the Victorian County Court? Yeah, so that's going to roll out, I think it goes live on the 26th of May. Um, it's still sort of, they're still tinkering around the edges in terms of um, the procedure involved, but basically it's when you're in the county court, that's for, for far more serious crimes um, where the magistrate wouldn't have, a, have the power to be able to deal with uh, jurisdictional power to deal with a, a very serious crime. Mm. And that could be um, due to the quantity of drugs that you possess or the, the seriousness of the crime. Um, so it's for people who are facing up to four years jail. Um, they're going to go into a specialist list. It's, it, obviously, it hasn't been launched just yet, so I don't know how it's going to exactly be. But it, it's really for people who are um, low-level um low-level traffickers and, and people who haven't caused any um, people who haven't caused any actual bodily harm to mm-hmm. people um, or no sexual offenders and there's there's very strict guidelines as to who they will accept and who they won't accept um, so it's it's still it's a very serious crime um, because obviously you're in the county court but it's there has to the, the basic framework has to be there. Um, there has to be on the balance of probabilities an addiction to drugs, and then there has to be a link between the offending and the actual drug usage itself. Um, and I imagine it'll it'll operate in the same way. Um, so you'll go before you'll go before a judge. There'll be an eligibility or a screening hearing, and then you receive the sentence and have the opportunity to um, serve that sentence within the community. Um, and I, I imagine that the ethos um, of drug court will 
remain the same because drug court is actually a it's it's a bipartisan um, specialist court and it was imported from America, I believe, in Florida in the 90s. And it's just achieved huge success. There's been study after study talking about uh, reduction in offending and reduction in the seriousness of the offending for people who have mm. been um, through the drug court program. And it, it really does save lives. Um, it saves money and it increases the protection for the community, really, um, because it's it's about rehabilitating people and, and looking behind the drug addiction and, and trying to solve the problems that are there. Yeah, yeah, and you've already pointed out that so often um, people's criminality is linked to their drug and alcohol dependencies and so there's some social issues that um, you know ourselves in the community have to address um, as well as that being addressed in the judiciary. Um, I'm just yeah, interested, um... there's a lot of, um, I know for the Curry Court, um, so some of the specialist courts uh, that exist in the magistrates' courts, people have to um, plead guilty, and so they can't go to yeah. trial. Is that the same with drug courts? Yeah, so it's um, in the magistrates' court, and it'll be the same in the county court. It, it will be in cases where there really is no, um, you know, there's very little chance or, or no chance of... of um, being found not guilty. Um, some, the vast majority of cases, the evidence is actually quite strong, um, but a forensic decision needs to be made between the client and um, the lawyer as to whether there is going to be a plea of guilty. So if you're going to enter into that plea of guilty and, and the evidence is what the evidence is, you can't really change that and it can't be challenged, then that's when we, that's when we go into drug court. Um, and... If you think of, I think the analogy um, that's often used is if you think of the drug court as a sort of like a cooperative court, um, defence lawyers actually take a bit more of a step back and so do the prosecution. And, and the, the person who's really, the people who are really leading it are the client and the, um, the magistrate or the judge. Um, the, the judicial officer takes on the role of sort of cheerleader, um, stern stern parent, um, counsellor, and they, they really guide the direction. And, and then behind the, the judicial officers, the magistrate or the judge, there's social workers, access to housing, drug and alcohol counsellors, trauma counsellors, and all sorts of programs and funding that they have access to um, to be able to incentivise um, sobriety. And um, the key to it, really, after practising in the drug court for a number of years, is, is honesty. Um, it, you won't be punished for um, use of drugs in the in the early um, in the early phases because you know we live in the real world and you can't just go into drug court and click a finger and everything's fine. Mm. Um, it's really about the honesty. So. Mm. People want the honesty, and that sh that that's the building blocks to be able to build on engagement and then um, rehabilitation. Mm. Yeah. Well, thank you so, so much. Um, 
Uh, we have to. Oh, sorry. We might have to wrap it up there, Felix. Um, but thank no you worries. so much for yeah letting us know a bit more about the drug courts that currently exist in the Melbourne Magistrates Court, as well as the drug courts that's going to be introduced into the Victorian County Court. Excellent. Have a great day. Thanks, Felix. More than 70 innocent refugees are still being indefinitely detained in detention centres and secure hotels around Australia. Over recent months, many fellow detainees have been released onto bridging visas. Those remaining are desperate to know why they are still held. It is indefinite, it is cruel and it is unlawful. Every day a group of supporters protests this brutality outside the Park Hotel at 701 Swanson Street, Melbourne, where 11 men remain trapped and whose hopes are fading and whose mental health is declining. The aim of the protests is to raise awareness of the situation for the general public, but also to show support and solidarity to the men inside. It is also for the approximately 200 refugees still held offshore. Please come along any weeknight at 6pm or weekend at 3pm. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. Now let's head into a new track by Tasman Keith and Kwame. This is one. I got motherfuckers claiming they might buy my shit. I got motherfuckers sitting on the road like drug that triggers and they waiting for the ruckus that they fighting shit. I don't like this shit, but it's part of this here. From fifth gear and big wear, they don't sit in there with big ears. So look here, you're gonna see fear. When my mental we grow, you won't give them things clear. That's the vision, yeah. I'm from the mission, yeah. But we ain't broke with it. Sippy cups, fist to cuff. And if you hit enough, well then you hit enough. I don't got the time to tell these motherfuckers what I think of my from the no seeds to no bleeds and proceeds Get my protein on propane or propane She got those fangs that choke things and no pain But this shit feel good Yeah, okay, I'm on one I don't need no one And if you supposed to be my Then you should throw some I got twin by me Call that old son Never backing that I'm really about to go, son Okay, I'm on one I don't need no one And if you supposed to be my Then you should throw some I got twin by me Call that old son Never backing that I'm really about to go, son Alright, hold on, motherfucker Wait a minute, yo, all these fucking rappers left a mess and now it's baffling. I walk in the room and catch them standing there like panic. Cause I'm God to you people. Holy Spirit in me channeling. Y'all need to quit the talking. Y'all some internet thugs. Needing some love or better yet. Needing a hug. So quit with the drugs. You and your homie ain't been a plug. Baddest bitches free game just for you and your cuz. So tell me what the fuck they gon' say to me. I can show you how to walk inside the game with me the free. I can show you how to get right through the door without a key. I can show you how to run it. That is better than crispy. Motherfucker, I'm so certified. I hardly guarantee. Only rapper that can rap is that producing all this beat. If y'all wanna come with me, I wouldn't even do that beat. Don't you bring it around me if you really wanna see. Motherfucker, I'm back on the money, black on down to the beat. Throw these act wrongs and pitch it back on you, fucking see. Tell them that one to take it back home and show the feet. They see many like you, they don't make it like me. With a mouth that they can't be ready for celebratory confetti, let them sing the heavy. Oh, I ain't no eyes, oh, scoped in from many. So go like, yes, man. Damn, hey, you put you in with carry. Oh, you an obvious rapper. I see the problem with rappers. I see the policy. Acting like you a policy rapper. They pull that policy rappers. They pull them pocket these rappers. And then they let them all go. Who are robbing these rappers? I don't change for them. Beat the stage for them. Put the pain for them. Play for them. Put the chain on them. Make a name for them. Stay for them. Let rain for them. Make it stay for them. Run again. I don't need no one, and if you're supposed to be my, 
and it's your gozun. I got twin by me, call that old son. Never backing that, I'm really about to go, son. Okay, I'm on one, I don't need no one. And if you're supposed to be my thing, you should go, son. I got twin by me, call that old son. Never backing that, I'm really about to go, son. Okay, I'm on one, I don't need no one. And if you're supposed to be my thing, you should go, son. I got twin by me, call that old son. Never backing that, I'm really about to go, son. Okay, I'm on one, I don't need no one. And you're on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast. Up next, we have two special guests, Guido Mello and Stephen Pham, who are joining us to discuss a new anthology, Racism, Stories of Fear, Hate and Bigotry, published by Sweatshop Western Sydney Literacy Movement. And Stephen Pham is a Vietnamese-Australian writer from Cabramatta, and he's been published in Mianjin, Griffith Review of Books, Sydney Review of Books, and most recently he co-wrote Sex, Drugs and Pork Rolls, which was produced by UTP and debuted at the Sydney Festival in 2021. And Guido Mello is an Afro-Brazilian Latinx multilingual author and poet based in Nam. His words can be found at Peril Magazine, Ascension Magazine, SBS Voice, SBS Portuguese, Cordite, Voz Limpia, Alma Preta Jornalismo, and Guia Negro News. Welcome both to Stephen and Guido. Hey, Rosie. Good to be here. And thanks for having us on. Um, so it's so great to have you both here. Stephen, I might start with you because you're actually the editor of this anthology. Could you just tell listeners uh-huh. a little bit about Sweatshop firstly and also um, how the anthology came about? Yeah, sure. Um, so Sweatshop Literacy Movement, Inc. is, I guess, a grassroots slash community organization um, based in Parramatta um, in Western Sydney. Um, I guess we might have started around... 2012, um, and so basically what Sweatshop does is we organize, uh, I guess, writing workshops for emerging writers, um, and we also hold writing workshops uh, in schools, and we do sort of artist residencies, um, and the idea is to sort of promote a broader idea a broader understanding of the idea of literacy, as in uh, sort of very influenced by, like, black feminist and scholar um, Bell Hooks, her idea of, like, literacy as how we read, how we see what we see, sorry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Um, so we put out anthologies like this as a sort of, like, result of all of that work. Um, and I guess... Maybe two years ago, it was, uh, sorry, one year ago, it was uh, Sweatshop Women Volume 2, um, which had a huge reception. And yeah, this year it's Racism, the anthology. Amazing. Yeah, you were just mentioning the bell hooks and kind of, I guess, the politics or ethos behind Sweatshop in general. I was wondering, if, um, you know, in selecting racism as as the kind of theme, I suppose, of the anthology or like trying to... Um, uh, asking people to respond to that and you know tell their stories. What was what was the kind of um, political aims or political guiding principles for you in in choosing that theme? Yeah, um, that is a very good question. I guess the reality of I guess my life as a person in Western Sydney, you know, um, 
as probably the most diverse sort of region in Australia. Um, for me, the reality of Australia, like, is multicultural. Um, but that's a really, really optimistic way of spinning it, right? Um, it's got all these sort of, like, the word, like, multiculturalism has all these, like, associations with, like, you know, uh, big banquet tables full of, like, spring rolls on one side and grilled prawns on the other. But with the reality of, like, multiculturalism, as in, like, not as a debate, right, but as in the literal fact of seeing so many people from diverse backgrounds on a daily basis. Um, from diverse backgrounds in my daily life, um, there comes with that this sort of uh, what uh, anthropologist Gassan Hajj calls, I guess, the fantasy of, uh, yeah, whiteness as a sort of uh, fantasy position of power. So, like, this is all going somewhere, I promise. Um, but basically that there exists in Australia, this denial of that reality of multiculturalism as a fact. And so with that comes the, reali the reality of the racism that we all face, um, at least, and by we, I mean everyone I know and see on a daily basis. Um, and so racism is just... I think we were just sick of... We at Sweatshop were sort of like sick of this denial of racism that seems to exist in Australia. Um, you know, that, like, people from John Howard to, like, uh, Scott Morrison to, like, Gladys Berejiklian, like, they act like pointing out the fact of racism is in itself an insult when it's actually just a fact. Um, and so... This anthology comes, it's more or less to be like a document that, it's more or less a document that we can point at and be like, then what about this? Yeah, totally. This is, yeah. No, totally, because you talk about that in the introduction to the book as well, about this, you know, yeah, mainstream kind of denial of racism, all this like trying to p make the fight about whether racism does or does not exist, but actually what you're able to do in the collection or in the anthology is, you know, intimately document and people's personal experiences of like very diverse um, different experiences and, we, and yeah just like this kind of more um, human intimate level of of talking about these issues rather than a kind of political fight on you know of yes or no I mean that's just yeah leave that discussion yeah. behind um, I might go to Guido now and just ask you about your um, piece in the anthology could you tell listeners a little bit about what you, about your piece and coming to write it yeah I think um there's always a Western Sydney somewhere, you know, growing up in the north side of Rio in Brazil. Um, it was not too dissimilar from what um, the experiences Stevens mentioned in, in Parramatta. Uh, when I first went to Parramatta, I just felt, felt at home because it reminded me of me growing up on the margins uh, where we... Um, I pushed down. It's interesting that when 
you know, it, you have a, a majority white suburb. It's consi- and there is like maybe 10% uh, non-white people. They consider diverse. But when it's the opposite, it's considered, uh, you know, we are swarming in or taking over or swap, you know. So, um, my piece talks about exactly that, living on the margins, uh, in a different Western Sydney, but in Rio. And, um, I was very young. I went to a supermarket and I talk about the experience that I faced with the security guard, uh, over there. And it's just that mistrust that's placed on us. Uh, especially as an Afro-Brazilian, you know, a person of distinctive difference uh, from mainstream whiteness, it's it's really easy to have, to have a target on your back, you know, since early age. And I talk about that experience. Um, my hope is really to talk to other uh, Africans or other people of color and say, hey, you know, it, it did happen. You're not imagining it because there's always the fear of being, of being guys lit, you know, being confused and think you were overblowing, over exaggerating. Um, it's, it's really hard to keep begging for our humanity. So I, you know, maybe three years ago when I wrote, you know, growing up African Australia, um, I, I was talking, I was attempting to talk to the white audience as well. Um, I'm no longer attempting that because um, if you can't see a humanity, if you can't see George Floyd's humanity, I, I can't, I can never show you, you know, uh, that's how I see it. So I think racism is very blatant because it's very deliberate. The title is very, this is what it is. You know, and, and, uh, I, I go to therapy. I, I get counseling, um, for about eight years now. And I feel that the problems that I've been tackling with my therapist, with my counselor, have been troubles that I accept they exist. And whilst, until Australia accepts it's racist, it's based on the destruction of indigenous people, it's based on dispossession, and it's based on the continuous uh, exploitation of people of color. Like we will not um, fix it because if you don't believe the problem exists, you, ca- you can't fix it. It's, it's just as simple as that. Absolutely, and yeah, that that um, theme of like institutionalized racism also comes through in your piece as well as. Um, kind of a beautiful nostalgia for your childhood and your relationship with your dad. So I think that that's, you know, really important that there's, there's like, yeah, your nostalgia for this time as well as the brutal reality of racism that was also part of that time. Yeah, there's this uh, disconnect. The brain does, you know, uh, the amygdala separates these memories and splits and you um, you really, you have to continue living as you're suffering these things and you, you sort of, I have incredible memories growing up and, and, and I love to re- relieve them. And then racism is just this peripheral thing that keeps flying around and, um, you know, p- poking on me whenever 
whenever you know I'm distracted. And the thing, especially growing up in Brazil, and I guess indigenous Australians also would feel similar here, is that our life is really on the line, you know, all the time. And that's I cannot explain. I, people have maybe who are refugees or people who really experience war-torn situations, or indigenous Australians, or Afro-Brazilians, African-Americans, once you're like 13, and you think people can literally kill you, and nothing's going to happen, it just something's broken on you, and, and it can never be fixed. I don't know how to fix it. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And um, unfortunately, we're running quickly out of time. Stephen, I was wondering if you could talk, tell listeners um, where they could find out more about this anthology and also, of course, buy a copy. Um, so uh, the most um, uh, the easiest way to uh, find out more about Sweatshop and also uh, get a copy of Racism is through our website, sweatshop.ws, so S-W-E-A-T-S-H-O-T.W-S. Um, and it'll, it's also in stores, uh, in, uh, good bookstores, uh, and also probably not so good bookstores as well, but, uh, uh, better than that, uh, and, um, readings, I believe. Uh, yeah. Yeah, great. Thank you so much. Among Thank- many. Yeah, thank, thank you. Much. Thanks so much for joining us, Stephen, and, and also Guido. It's really special to have yeah, you in the you. studio. Um, and that was Guido Mello and Stephen Pham joining us to discuss the new anthology, Racism, Stories of Fear, Hate and Bigotry, published by Sweatshop. Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force Yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. We've got a common enemy. The same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel is the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have. 
and so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers' united self-defence mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle. Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast. And now we have Jasmine Pilbara on the line from Make West Papua Safe. And she joins us to discuss an action on Monday, 10 May, so that's next Monday, to call on the Australian Federal Police to stop training the Indonesian National Police Force. Welcome, Jasmine. Thanks for joining us on 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast. Thanks for having me. So can you tell us a little bit more about this action on Monday? Yeah, so we're, as you said, going to meet on Monday, 10th of May, um, and we'll be meeting at Flagstaff Station at 12 p.m. And we want to head over to the AFP headquarters at 12.30. And the reason we're going there is that the AFP are a key um, and vital part of the Indonesian police training and education. Um, Since 2004, the AFP has helped train over 21,000 Indonesian police. And this includes their paramilitary um, units, um, Brimmog and Detachment 88, who are known perpetrators of human rights violations. Gosh. Um, and how can listeners find out a bit more about this topic? Yeah, so if people are on social media, they can head to our uh, Facebook page, Make West Papua Safe, and from there they can find our Twitter and Instagram um, and alternatively, our website, makewestpopulistafe.org, has a lot of information about this training. Mm. Um, and what are some other campaigns and events that you have going on at the moment with Make West Papua Safe? Yeah, so we're also a part of a great um, festival of resistance that will be taking place in Brisbane at the end of May and early June. So there's going to be a huge weapons expo and conference taking place called Land Forces and this is where a lot of major weapon companies come together along with the Australian Defence Force and other defence ministers from around 70 countries Um, and so Disrupt Land Forces will be taking place to counter that and there will be a public meeting in Melbourne on Tuesday the 18th of May at 7pm at Friends of the Earth so anyone is welcome to that. Okay, great. Um, so the dates for listeners are next Monday, the 10th of May. And so uh, what time can people meet outside the Australian Federal Police Force headquarters? Yeah, so um, meet us at 12.30 at 383 Latrobe Street in the CBD. Otherwise, just meet us a bit earlier outside Flagstaff Station at 12. Um, great. And how can listeners support if they can't make it on Monday? Yeah, so there are heaps of different ways to support. Um, for those on social media, just head to our Facebook page or our Twitter, Make West Papua Safe. And if you can follow us, share, comment and like on the action as it unfolds, it will be live streamed. Um, and for those that can't, are not available on Monday to do that, it's great if they can do that as a follow-up whenever they're online. 
Um, and people can just get in touch with us um, via our website as well and find different ways to, to connect. Mm, great. And, um, yeah, definitely I encourage your listeners to check out the Disrupt Land Forces um, group and events coming up. So they there is going to be a Land Forces, uh, so it's a pretty much a Defence Arms conference that's happening up in Minjin, Brisbane um, at the beginning of uh, June. And, yeah, Make West Papua Safe are really heading up um, a lot of the disruption actions that are going to be occurring up there. And if you are based in Nam, then still definitely follow Disrupt Land Forces on Facebook and on social media. And, yeah, make sure that you um, yeah, really support all of the work that Make West Papua Safe is doing. Is there anything else that you'd like to add, Jasmine? I think um, we'll just add that it's a really crucial time at the moment. In West Papua, there has been an expansion of the military operations. Um, and as our, you know, our federal police are a key part of training the Indonesian police, it's a really critical time for people to gather and just, um, you know, challenge the, the lack of um, monitoring and evaluation of our training programs to Indonesia. Yeah, no, it's something that I think a lot of us, um, well, I mean, that information really isn't broadcast, right, through um, mainstream media. And so it's really important that when we do find out this information, that we do support grassroots causes to disrupt the work that the Australian police force are doing. Thanks so much, Definitely. Jasmine, for joining us Thank this morning you. on 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast. They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yen Up Asaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. And now we're at the end of our show, so I think we'll do a final rundown. So first up this morning, we heard Dr Vikrant Kishore, a filmmaker and academic at Deakin University, speak with Priya earlier in the week about COVID-19 and caste discrimination in Australia and India. We then spoke to mental health social worker Monica Cast about the proposed changes to telehealth services under Medicare and the impacts and recommendations um, on that as well. And then I spoke with Felix Ralph, who is a criminal lawyer, about the drug courts that are currently in place in the Victorian Magistrates' Courts and the new plans for a drug court to be introduced into the Victorian County Court. Then I spoke with Guido Mello and Stephen Pham about the new anthology put out by Sweatshop called Racism, Stories of Fear, Hate and Bigotry. And then just lastly, we heard from Jasmine Pilbara from Make West Papua Safe, who joined us to discuss an action that's happening next Monday to call on the Australian Federal Police Force to stop training the Indonesian National Police Force. What a huge show this morning. Yeah, feels good. Great that we had somebody come into the studio. Yeah, really, really great. The Black Lives Matter movement is not going away here or overseas. 
it gives me hope seeing the numbers of people that turn out to these Invasion Day demonstrations in Melbourne. It gives me the understanding that we will win, folks. We will succeed! Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. Rumination. 3CR's Rooming House and Homeless Persons Issues Program. Featuring information on health and housing services, as well as live local guests, artists and performers from our unsung community. Join us at 12pm on Thursday on 3CR 855am. And we're coming up to the end of our show. That is all we have time for. Thank you so much for joining us on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast. If you missed any part of the show, um, our podcast will be up later today. And next up, Lost in Science. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. While you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.